We are in Hebrews again, chapter 3, today. We're just going to look at the first verse, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Let me read that again. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, or literally, holy brothers, heavenly calling sharers, or brother saints, heavenly calling sharers, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Some of us might find the word brothers a little disconcerting here. Were women left out of the picture? Not at all. It was common to use the word brothers as a general referent for all the members of the community of faith. That's why many versions today translate it as brothers and sisters. It's an inclusive word. But if the word brother might disconcert us, the word holy might disconcert us more. Are we holy? What makes a person holy? It's an enormously important question, since our author will later insist that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is the pass key, not just to heaven someday, but to seeing the Lord today in everyday life. Holiness is that important, so let me just put it out there for you. Are you holy? That's a tough question for people, especially in today's intellectual environment. Nobody wants to claim to be holy because we think of being holy as being perfect, and who wants to say that? And to make it worse, popular opinion is prejudiced against holiness. If you were to ask people on the street, and perhaps even in the church, to give you synonyms for the word holy, you would hear things like uppity, snobbish, Conceited, arrogant, self-centered, hypocritical. But those things have nothing to do with being holy. They're unholy things. The devil has succeeded in taking a good word that might lead people to seek God and turning its meaning inside out. It's as if hell had a world languages department that spends its time twisting words in order to keep people from the truth. For example... Something is only sinful these days. If it's high in trans fats and calories, then it's sinfully delicious. And the word greed never gets any press at all unless it follows the descriptor corporate. That way we can believe that only the rich and powerful are greedy. Me, I'm a decent guy. I'm a member of the 1%. I'm not like that. This corruption of language is nowhere more evident than when it comes to the word holy. In the rules of diabolical grammar, the word holy always takes the comparative form, holier, and then is followed by two more words, than thou. 
That's what people think when they hear the word holy, but it's not a biblical idea at all. Holiness is a good thing. In fact, the psalmist speaks of it as a beautiful thing, the beauty of holiness. Pride and self-importance couldn't be further from what the Bible means by holy. So what makes people holy? Remember, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What makes people holy? How would you answer that question? People are holy if they don't swear, if they don't drink. People are holy if they don't break the Ten Commandments, don't look at porn, don't treat other people badly. People are holy if they give money to the poor, to World Vision, to the food pantry, if they go to church, if they read the Bible and pray. Is that what makes people holy? But the way I worded the question has already led us down a wrong albeit well-traveled path. The real question has never been what makes people holy, but who makes people holy? And the answer is the one who makes people holy is Jesus, as our author told us in the last chapter, the one who's not ashamed to call us brothers. The kind of conduct that I just mentioned, the behavioral don'ts and do's, are not holiness though they may be expressions of it. And there are other important expressions of holiness too. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you don't see any of these expressions in your life, there is cause for concern. But remember, you cannot make yourself holy by what you do. Only Jesus can make you holy. Your part is to believe what God says about you and consecrate your body and life to his service. We need a better grasp on what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart as special or to be reserved for God's use. That's something only God can do. Many very nice people People who don't swear, who don't look at porn, who do go to church, who do give to the food pantry, are not holy at all. They've never been set apart as special, reserved for God's use. You can be nice without being holy. And believe it or not, you can be holy without being nice. That is, you can be set apart for God's special purposes, even though you still have a lot of room for growth and the ways of holiness. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of how holiness works. Let's say you live in Old Testament times. Let's say we live in Old Testament times. You, unlike your neighbor, don't have a lot of money. But you do love the Lord, and you want to honor him. You don't have much of anything that's valuable, but you do have a, a, an old brass pitcher that belonged to your mother's mother's mother. And even though it isn't worth much, It's tarnished, it's badly dented. You take it to the temple and give it to the priest. The priest takes that pitcher into the service of God to use in the temple. He washes it, he sprinkles it with blood from a sacrifice, and from then on that old pitcher is holy. It's still dented and tarnished, but it's holy. It no longer belongs to you, it belongs to God and will only be used in his service. Now let's go back to your neighbor. Let's say your neighbor has lots of valuable things. 
including a beautiful gold vase. It has lovely etchings in the gold. It's worth a great deal of money. It's pleasing to the eye. There's not a dent in it. It's not tarnished. But while it's much nicer than the picture you gave to God, it's not holy. It hasn't been set apart or reserved for God's use. Just so, one person may be full of bad habits, dented up by bad breaks, tarnished by life's experiences, and still be holy because God has reserved his life, even though it doesn't seem to be worth much, for his purposes and pleasure. Another person may have been blessed with loving parents who inculcated into him good manners. They passed on to him a bubbly personality and a kind demeanor and enormous talent. He has a good conscience and high moral standards, but none of that makes him holy. Holiness does not have to do with how nice you are, but with whether or not you are God's. So how do you know? If you've been set apart as special, reserved for God's use, well, you can ask yourself some questions. Do you desire to please God? Is that in you? Do you have a longing to change? Are you increasingly aware of attitudes and behaviors that are keeping you from getting closer to God? See, it's a paradox, but those who are holy are generally quicker to recognize their own sins and slower to recognize the sins of others than those who aren't. How do you know if you're holy? Here's the key question. Have you given yourself to God, believing in his son, Jesus Christ? If you have, you are holy, even though you may not have gotten very far in expressing that holiness. Whether you're a beat-up, tarnished old pitcher or a beautiful gold vase, when it comes to holiness, the only thing that matters is whether you belong to God. Our author describes his readers as holy brothers. But look, he doesn't stop there. He also refers to them as heavenly calling sharers. Now that phrase could refer to those who share a calling from heaven. That is, they've heard heaven calling them. Have you heard heaven calling you? Or those who share a call to heaven. And the reality is that both are true because heaven calls us home. We are holy brothers and sisters who are heavenly calling sharers. That's our identity, or at least it's part of our identity, if we belong to Jesus. Now, if you don't belong to Jesus, that's not your identity. But if you do belong to Jesus, is that how you think of yourself? As holy as special to God and reserved for his purpose, as men and women with a vocation on earth and a calling to heaven. If that's not how you think of yourself, following Jesus has probably been a big struggle for you. See, how you think of yourself is extraordinarily important to your success in the Christian life, second only to how you think of God and perhaps your neighbor. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a college student, a very intelligent, capable guy. He once taught that had cerebral palsy. Um, he suffered the spastic movements and the garbled speech that go with it. Sproul 
tells the story this way. He says, one day he came to me vexed with a problem and asked me to pray for him. In the course of the prayer, I said something routine with words like, oh God, please help this man as he wrestles with this problem. When I opened my eyes, the student was openly weeping. I asked him what was wrong, and he stammered his reply, you called me a man. No one has ever called me a man before. That young man had accepted the identity that others had given to him. To hear Sproul call him a man opened up a new reality to him. The same thing can happen to us when we hear God call us holy brothers and heavenly calling sharers. The way you routinely think of yourself makes a huge difference. The oldest independent boarding school in the United States recently changed its name. It has a list of highly distinguished alumni. Uh, Paul Revere was at that boarding school. So was John Quincy Adams. The school was founded in 1720 and named after the governor of the Massachusetts Territory at the time, William Dummer. But the Governor Dummer Academy, you can imagine, has long been the object of ridicule. One of the taunts was, students who come in come out dumber. Well, that wasn't true. The the school has an excellent reputation, provides a a great education, and parents pay for it. It's very exclusive. Parents pay over $30,000 to send their kids there every year. But the board believed the school's name was obscuring its elite nature, and so they voted to change it to just Governor's Academy. Well, here's the point. Maybe it's time you change your name, too from sinner to holy brother or sister, from failure to heavenly calling share. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It means that we don't let sin define our identity. Only God gets to do that. And he has done it if we belong to his son. Someone said God's not interested in changing you. He already has. God is not changing us into something we're not but maturing us into something we already are. That's what the author of Hebrews meant when he said that Jesus is making us holy. He is making us present tense, continuing action, holy, separating us from every idol, false God, making us his own for his purpose, making us who we are. A while back, our friend Dean Knapp discovered that her social security number had been stolen. She found out it was being used by some Hispanic guy in Chicago. And he was the victim of identity theft. Someone had taken her identity. But here's the irony. That Dee and all of us who believe in Jesus Christ are by definition people who have taken someone else's identity. We're called Christians because we've taken Christ's identity. It's not the identity we were born with. We didn't do anything to earn the right to use it. And yet it's not identity theft. We're the recipients of an identity gift. Because Jesus is the one making us holy, calling us heavenward, it's important to fix our thoughts on him. We must, as chapter 2 put it, remember, pay more careful attention. We don't want to miss what he's doing. If we forget what he's done, 
or miss out on what he's doing, we're going to find the Christian life more difficult than it need be. So our author urges us in verse 1 to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We can't make ourselves holy, but we can do this. We can fix our thoughts on Jesus. If a brain surgeon did surgery on you and was able to place some electrode in your brain that relays an electrical charge that indicates every time you think of Jesus, you got the picture? I could predict with a high degree of certainty your success as a follower of Christ. Think of him once every couple of days, constant struggles with sin. Think of him once a day, slow progress in obedience with many ups and downs. Think of him many times a day, solid growth in faith and love. Think about him all through the day, maturing into the person God made you to be. Now, we can't see how often a person thinks of Jesus. What we can do is fix our thoughts on him. The one who, according to chapter 2, verse 18, can help us. We must focus our attention on him, what he's done, and what he's doing. Now, our author described us in two ways that speak of our identity. Holy brothers, heavenly calling sharers. Then, after urging us to fix our thoughts on Jesus, he describes him in two ways that speak of his identity. He is the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Those are extremely unusual ways of describing Jesus. In the New Testament, no other author ever refers to Jesus as a high priest. Only our author of Hebrews, and he does so about ten times. And in the New Testament, no other writer ever uses the noun apostle to refer to Jesus. And our author only does it once in this verse. Apostle literally means sent one. It was used, uh, a title given to, to delegates and ambassadors, to people sent with authority to conduct business on behalf of another. So when Jesus appointed the 12, Mark tells us that he gave them authority to act in his name and designated them as apostles. I said no one ever uses the noun apostle to refer to Jesus, and that's true except for our author. But in the Gospel of John, the apostle describes Jesus as sent. That's the verb form of the noun apostle. Apostle las, we have here. Apostolane is the verb form. He uses that 17 times of Jesus. For John, it's not the apostles. He never uses that word of disciples. But Jesus himself, who is preeminently the sent one. Whenever John refers to the apostles, he always just calls them the 12. Never calls them by the word apostle. Our author shares that perspective. He never even mentions the 12 apostles, which is very unusual as well. The words used 74 times from Acts to Revelation. And our author never uses it of, of men besides Jesus. For our author, as for John, Jesus is the apostle, the sent one par excellence. He's come with heaven's message to do heaven's work. He is God's representative to us. But he's also high priest. That is, that means he's our representative to God. 
Do you see what our author is doing? He uses the term apostle to indicate that Jesus is God's representative to humans. And he uses the term high priest to indicate that Jesus is humanity's representative to God. That fits biblical teaching perfectly. The one God who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth has provided one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is both second person of the Trinity and second Adam, is the bridge between heaven and earth. That's why it was necessary for the eternal son to become a man, chapter 2, to be made lower than the angels, to be made like his brothers in every way. The writer says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest whom we confess, or literally, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Scholars debate what the author had in mind when he wrote that, but there is this at least. When we confess, the Greek word for confess has two roots. One means the same and the other means to say. We say the same thing as God says. For example, when we confess our sins, we say the same thing about our sins that God says about them. When we confess Jesus, we say the same thing about Jesus that God says about him. The confession that our author has in mind here is about what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he's done for us. When we make our confession, we say the same things about Jesus that God says, and we say the same things about ourselves that God says. That's important. Some people have an orthodox confession about Jesus. Maybe they repeat the Apostles' Creed. But their personal creed is nothing short of heresy. Their personal creed is, my true identity is sinner. But if I do better, if I become more religious, if I hide all my faults, then maybe God will accept me. That is not at all what God says about the people of Jesus. He calls them holy brothers and heavenly calling sharers. Not to say that we don't sin. It's to say that sinner is no longer our true identity. Not if we belong to Jesus Christ. God has already changed our identity. But until we say what he says... That is, until we confess the truth about Jesus and ourselves, the life of grace and love will elude us. The way we think about ourselves and about Christ must be consistent with the truth. Last year, Harper's Magazine ran a story about a guy named Gary Matthews from Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, who petitioned the court to have his name legally changed to Boomer the Dog. In his petition, Matthew said, I've been known as Boomer the Dog by my friends in this community for 20 years. I want to bring my legal name in line with that. But the judge denied the request, explaining that it would cause too much confusion. He said that if the petitioner saw a serious, a serious automobile accident and called 911 and the dispatcher asked his name and he answered Boomer the Dog, the dispatcher would probably think it was a prank and not send emergency medical aid. The judge then concluded his memorandum this way. Although the petitioner apparently wishes it were otherwise, the simple fact remains that he's not a dog. Okay? Though we may think otherwise, the simple fact for those who belong to Jesus Christ is that their deepest identity is not sinner, but holy brother or sister. The simple fact is that their hope does not end with this life. They are heavenly calling sharers. And the simple fact is that this is true because Jesus Christ is the apostle, the one who represents God to us, and high priest, the one who represents us to God. 
So what's our part in all of this? It's to trust Jesus and present your life to him, our high priest. He will take your life, just as the priest in my illustration took the old pitcher, and make it holy. He will reserve your life for God's use. So the apostle teaches us, present your bodies as living, think working, sacrifices to God. Have you done that? Let's pray. I pray, God, that you will, by your spirit, light up this truth to our minds. That we are what we are because you are who you are. Teach us to rejoice in the truth that because of our high priest, we are holy. We are yours. And help us to act with courage on that truth and present our bodies to you, trusting you to use us for your goodwill and purpose. In Christ's name, amen.